We continue our sermon series in Jonah this morning, and this morning we'll be on Jonah chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the scripture will be printed on your sermon guide in your worship folder. The sermon this morning comes from Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It was a conversation that I don't think I'll ever forget. It's etched in my memory. Uh, it was a Saturday night years ago, and I got a call from a young man who I had been discipling and mentoring. And there was a, there was a quiver in his voice, and I knew pretty quickly something, something was wrong. There was a shakiness about him, and about two sentences in, he started to sob like a little baby. He was a senior in high school, and his girlfriend had come in town for the weekend. And they got together with some friends who were with another group of friends, and they ended up at the end of a road in a field with lots of alcohol. Now, before I tell you the rest of the story, you need to know that, that Andrew was uh, seen as a very, a very good, uh, moral Christian guy, church attending, youth group attending. On top of that, he, he was not a drinker. But given this scenario, out with friends and lots of alcohol, he and his girlfriend started drinking. And about at some point in the night, Andrew hears this frantic call from his friends. And he goes over and he sees his girlfriend unconscious on the ground. And so he did what was probably the hardest thing he's ever had to do. He called his parents. And he told his parents what had happened and that she was unconscious and she needed to get to the hospital. And so they raced there and they took her to the hospital. And the phone call I received was after she was taken care of, everything was gonna be okay. And what he said to me after he gathered himself, is he, he quoted 1 John to me, he had opened his Bible. And he was reading from 1 John and he said, Keith, I'm reading 1 John, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, he read that, he had missed a number of the verses before that. You see, he was a guy who hadn't come to a full understanding of the depth of his sin and what he was capable of. He hadn't understood 
really below the surface what he was really living for. Under the cover of church attendance and youth group attendance and, and even Bible study and prayer. And because of that, he, he hadn't really come to understand grace at a heart level, at a deep functional level. And this night broke him and it changed him because it shook him up to think deeply about grace and the grace of God. We're in this story about a man named Jonah. And last week, we talked about Jonah, who, who is a prophet of God. He's a law-abiding prophet of God. Fairly moral, fairly clean. And that's what prophets were. And he had some understanding of grace, because when we read in chapter 4, verse 2, there was some understanding of grace. He had a relationship with God. He had faith of some sort, and it was working fine as long he was, as he was in the condition that he was in, which was a successful prophet in a successful nation of Israel. In fact, at the time before this book and this encounter, Israel was experiencing tremendous prosperity under King Jeroboam. And Jonah's job was to tell the king from God through Jonah to the king that, a, that Israel is going to restore its ancient glory. Right? That was his job. He, he delivered good news, which was very rare for a prophet. And his, his faith, his relationship with God, his understanding of grace was sufficient or seemed to work in those situations. But then Jonah, the book of Jonah happens. Things changed pretty quickly. God calls him to go to Nineveh to preach a message of repentance. He called him to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, which was the dominant rising world power of the time. It was a brutal nation. They brutalized nations around them, including Israel. And so Israel hated Nineveh, hated Assyria. And God said, Jonah, I want you to go into the heart of Nineveh and preach this message of repentance. And suddenly, the, the faith that he had, the relationship with God he had, the understanding of grace that he had was not sufficient for this. And because of it, he ran. He ran the opposite way. Because he didn't understand grace. Now, if a prophet of God didn't understand grace at a deep heart functional level, then I think it's fairly safe to assume that you and I don't understand grace as God would intend for us to understand it. So what is it? What is grace? And why is it so critical understanding it to find your place in God's mission? Well, first, let's explore the need for grace. The first Six verses of chapter two conclude Jonah's fall that begins in chapter one, and there's a phrase that's repeated that really describes Jonah's fall. It starts in verse three of chapter one. It says, he, Jonah, went down to Joppa. Then verse five of chapter one, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then verse six of chapter two, Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars 
closed upon me forever. You see, Jonah is going down and down and down until he hits rock bottom. What he describes in verse two of chapter two as the belly of Sheol. Now that word Sheol, it means, it can mean Hades, it can mean hell, it can mean um, the grave, it is the realm of death. And so Jonah is basically saying that he reached the point of functional death. He's physically alive, but he's experiencing psychological death, emotional death, spiritual death. And you say, why? Because he was losing the very thing that defined his life. He was losing the very thing that he was building his identity upon. You say, what is that? Last week, we talked about why did Jonah run? And when I explained the, the situation of Nineveh, similar to you going to preach a message of repentance in the middle of an ISIS camp, right? The immediate thought is, wow, well, of course we know why he ran. And he was scared to death. He didn't want to go preach a message of repentance. He knew they wouldn't repent and they would kill him. So he ran away. Well, no, that's not the reason. We learn in chapter four, verse two, right, that actually Jonah knew they would repent. He knew God was gracious. And because of that, couldn't bear the thought of God relenting from wiping out Nineveh. Because as long as Nineveh was around, the very thing that Jonah was living for, success of Israel, success as a prophet, security of Israel, security as a prophet, was in jeopardy. That's why he ran. And that's why here in Jonah 2, we're getting to the very bottom where he is experiencing functional death. Because that thing that defines him, that thing he's living for, the thing that is, he is building his identity upon is falling apart. God is going to relent from wiping out the enemy that is of grave danger to Israel. And Jonah can't bear the thought. And so we see he experiences this death. He begins to almost implode. You know what a black hole is? A black hole is a massive star that implodes on the inside. And when it does, it creates such a strong gravitational force that nothing, particles, not even light, can escape from it. That's what's happened here to Jonah. He has imploded and he can't save himself. He can't bring himself life. He can't conjure up joy. The success of Israel is doing him no good in the belly of the fish in the bottom of the ocean. The security of himself, the success of him as a prophet, it's doing no good. He is absolutely broken, experiencing functional, spiritual, emotional death with nothing left to cling to. Now you say, what, what does that mean that he's broken? What is brokenness? You know, we oftentimes define brokenness by a set of awful circumstances. Right? Somebody experiences brokenness when, when something bad happens, when circumstances go south. And yet, that, 
That's not brokenness. Sure, circumstances can highlight brokenness, but brokenness is a condition of the heart. It's not a circumstance that's defined behaviorally. So what is it? Brokenness is the recognition and the sorrow that you are living for something or someone other than Jesus Christ. That's what brokenness is. The recognition that something is occupying the center of your life other than Jesus. You say, got it, Keith. I'm living for Christ. It's not that easy. In fact, one, one psychologist, he, he makes this note. He says, it's very hard to figure out what you're really living for by simply asking yourself. He says, you're not that self-aware. You may think, I'm living for God. But the way to find out is not to ask that question. Instead, he says, look at your nightmare. What thing, if absent, would almost or would take away your reasons to live? He says your deepest emotions, anxiety, fear, despair, and anger will point you to your God. What would almost take away your reasons to live? Would it be the loss of a job? Would it be the failure to get promoted in your career? Would it be the failure to get straight A's or really good grades? Would it be the loss of a loved one? Would it be somebody not liking you, failing to get that approval that you desperately need? Would it be losing all of your money in a stock market crash? Would it be watching one of your children rebel and go down a path that's the opposite of what you raised them for? You see, when you start to unpack the real functional reasons for which you are living, you start to see that sin is not just about breaking a rule. That sin is about building an identity apart from God. That that's what sin is. And when you understand that, then you understand at a very deep level the need for grace. So what is it? What is grace? What's the meaning of grace? This is the key point of Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. You say, how do we know that? When did God appoint the fish to vomit Jonah back on dry land? It wasn't after he said he would go to Nineveh, right? The command to go to Nineveh is going to come in chapter 3. It was after he understood grace, and we're going to unpack that. You say, you know what, God will be pleased with me if I just, if I do something great for him. Sure, God wants you to do something for him, absolutely, but not if you don't understand grace. Because if you try to or attempt to do something great for God, like going into the heart of Nineveh and preaching a message of repentance, okay, apart from understanding grace, you will do a tremendous amount of damage to yourself, to others, to your own heart. Jonah understands grace. Look at verse 8. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love or forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That word steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It shows up all over the Old Testament. It is God's covenant faithfulness. It is his unconditional love. It's his always pursuing love that doesn't depend on your behavior. That's what hesed means. And that's what Jonah comes to an understanding of. The love of God that doesn't depend on his behavior ultimately. Right? That's grace. And then verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Some have noted that this is the key verse in the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That it's the summary of the Bible. That it's the theme of the entire Bible. That it's what Jesus' ministry was all about. That in every event, every circumstance, every uh, event of your life, this is what God is trying to teach you, that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's another way of defining grace. It's another way of defining grace. Some of you may not think you need salvation. This verse says you do. Some of you may think you need salvation, but it belongs to you because you lived a really good, clean life. Neither. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Colossians 1.6, Paul says this, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. What's Paul saying there? Since the day you heard it, there's a first time understanding of grace. And then there's a continual understanding of grace that is like fruit growing on a tree which means until the day you die, you will be continually understanding at a deeper and deeper level the grace of God. That's what Paul is trying to explain in Colossians chapter one. So what is grace? There's two components of it that show up here in Jonah's prayer. One is the free nature of it. Two is the costly nature of it. Let's start with the free nature of grace. Verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. That salvation is completely and utterly of the Lord. That it's not yours, which means it's of grace. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Okay? Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Now, when you and I fail to understand grace, both or one of those components is missing. Let me give you three examples to try to explain the difference of what we're talking about here. First example, imagine that you're a parent of a disobedient and irresponsible teenager, but you love and care for your teenage kid anyways. Now, the teenager is clearly undeserving, right? But you're obligated to care for that child, both morally and by law. Second example, I want you to imagine that you're in a, a Bible study, a group of you, and you have a wonderful teacher, a wonderful leader. And so at the end of the semester, you decide to all chip in and get your leader, your teacher, a gift. 
you're clearly unobligated to do such a thing, but your teacher is deserving, right? She's worked hard and she's done a really good job. Now, let me give you a third example. You live in a small apartment complex and the walls are paper thin. College students, this may ring true for you. You may be able to resonate with this. And your neighbor next door in the apartment plays really loud music, really loud. And so one day when your neighbor is playing the loud music, you walk over, you knock on the door, your neighbor opens the door and you very kindly ask for him to turn the music down. He slams the door in your face and he turns the music up louder. And when you and your other neighbors around this man play soft music in your apartment, he calls the police. The man gets sick, very sick one day and starts headed downhill. And you start to run errands for him. You start to buy groceries for him. You start to take care of him. Clearly, he is undeserving of that gift, correct? And clearly, you are unobligated, right? Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. And here's what happens. When you miss the component of undeserved gift, meaning that you believe you deserve salvation or that you're living in such a way that God clearly had to reward you with salvation, that he looked at you and thought, ah, you're living a little bit better than the person next to you, you become filled with spiritual pride, right? You look down your nose at the person next to you. You're filled with spiritual pride because you've missed that undeserved gift component. Now go to the other side. What about when you miss the component of unobligated giver? Meaning, you you believe, at least functionally, may not say this out loud, but functionally you believe that God is obligated to save you or to, to grant you salvation, that he owes you something. You're gonna, you're gonna live a life of great disappointment because you're always gonna be critical of how God is working out the details of your life, what he's not providing how he provided something. And so when you miss those components, both of them, you're either gonna be filled with spiritual pride and or live a constantly critical, ungrateful life. When you miss grace and you miss those components of it. So grace is free. Undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Second though, it's costly. Grace is, it's free, but it's costly. Look at this in in verse four. Interesting to note, when Jonah hits rock bottom, and as he calls it, the belly of Sheol, when he hits functional death, spiritual, emotional death, where does he turn? Where does he turn? Into verse four. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then verse seven. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You say, that's a little strange. Why would Jonah turn to the temple? Why not just turn to God, say, God, I made a mess of things. Just forgive me. Let's just push it behind us. Let's move forward. 
Let's buddy-buddy, we're good to go. Why does he turn to the temple of all things? Because the temple was the place of sacrifice. The temple was the place of blood. The temple was actually a very gory and messy place where animals were sacrificed, where blood was poured out. And it was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ to come. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, he was talking about, not a building, he was talking about his body. Your sin cost Jesus his life. Your sin cost Jesus his life. That grace is costly. There's an infinite cost to it. The life of the Son of God. It's interesting when you look at these uh, two components of grace. The free nature of grace typically informs the mind. You say, okay, I, I don't have to earn it. It's free. It's the costly nature of grace that starts to grip the affections of your heart. Think about it. If a multimillionaire gave you $100 and a widow on food stamps gave you $100, both are free, right? Both gifts are free, but not both are costly. Which gift would grip the affections of your heart? You see, your sin cost Jesus his life. That grace is costly. Okay, so so what? So what? Why was God so, why was it his goal to get Jonah to understand grace finally in the belly of this fish before he went to Nineveh? In other words, why is understanding grace so critical for you to find your place in God's mission? And it goes back to Colossians 1, where Paul talks about grace bearing fruit. That grace actually bears fruit in your life. What's the fruit? Well, the first, the first fruit is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. Look at verse 9. Jonah says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. You see, throughout chapter one, you see the picture of an incredibly selfish man. He doesn't care about Nineveh. And as we'll find out at the end of chapter four, 120,000 people. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't, he doesn't care about the sailors in the ship. In fact, <laughs> The unbelieving pagan sailors have to call Jonah, the prophet of God, out on his selfishness. They basically say, how can you sleep when our lives are hanging in the balance? He's an incredibly selfish man. And yet what we see is that when he comes to an understanding of grace, it turns his self-preservation into mission. He says, yes, I will, I will go to Nineveh. I will go to Nineveh. Yes, God, if you relent from wiping Nineveh out, yes, it's a, it's a threat to Israel. It's a threat to my success, Israel's success. It's a threat to my security, Israel's security. All of that I've been living for. Upon understanding grace, he says, you know what? 
from self-preservation and what I had been living for, I am going to care, God, about the things that you care for. I'm going to care what you care about. You see, so, so grace transforms the human heart from self-preservation, self-focus right, to mission. That's the first fruit that we see. The second fruit of grace is humility. It's humility. Notice verse 8. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, before God pursued Jonah and broke him, Jonah would have quoted this verse about the Ninevites and about the sailors on the ship. He was a prophet of God. And all the surrounding nations were involved in what was called pagan worship. They had a, a list of gods that they served and worshiped, and they tried to appease, and they tried to get rewards from. And we even see it in chapter 1 with the sailors. When they start talking to Jonah, you can tell they, that is what they're about. What, what has your God done that's bringing this calamity? Right? Before God broke Jonah and before he understood grace, he would have quoted verse 8 about them, about the people of Nineveh about the sailors, and yet now we see him speaking, verse 8, with great humility, because he's not talking about the explicit, formal, wood statue idols of the sailors and of the people of Nineveh. He's talking about his idolatry, and he recognizes that he is no different than them, that he had been living for something other than God, just like they are, the one true God. You see, grace destroys pride. It destroys pride. It dismantles it. Pride can't, can't stand in the presence of grace. Let me give you an example to try to tie this to mission for you. I have a neighbor whose life is centered around money and wealth. By the conversations I have with him, by the number of times I see him out front in his house at all hours on the phone cutting deals, to how he lives his life, to what he buys, to, to everything. It's very evident that money, wealth is right at the center for him. He's living for it, trying to build it. Now, I've got an option at that point. I either look at my neighbor and say, ah. Oh, too bad he hadn't quite matured yet enough, like I have. You know, I figured this money, wealth thing out. I know better. You know, maybe one day he'll get there. Or I look deep into my heart and I recognize that one of the things that can, get, can circle and swirl in the center for me is security, specifically financial security, which makes me look at my bank account way too much which makes me spend way too much time thinking about provision for the future. In other words, when I understand my own heart, I look at my neighbor and go, we are no different. The only difference, the only difference is that God has shown me grace, has poured his grace out on me. That I've received an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. And that grace is transforming me, yes, to change the way I view wealth and money and my security and that I find my security in Jesus. But what a difference that makes with the way I approach my neighbor. Because now I see him and I move towards him with compassion, not judgment. 
Think about two magnets. You ever had two magnets and you, you try to push them together? And if you get the two poles that are the same, what does it do? It just repels. You flip it over and it draws together. Spiritual pride, spiritual pride always repels. Spiritual pride will repel you from your neighbor. It will repel you from everyone around you because spiritual pride says, I have to keep my distance. I have to be better. Right? Humility, born by grace, is just the opposite. It's like the magnets that draw together. See, humility, born by grace, moves you with great compassion to your neighbor to those that don't know Christ. And that is why understanding grace, not at an intellectual level, Jonah was there before God called him to Nineveh, but at a deep functional heart level, that is why understanding grace is so critical to finding your place in God's mission and to building a community that is attractive because it is full of grace. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for our, our pride, for our spiritual pride that, that runs unchecked, that, that, that runs under the radar? Would you help us to see our need for grace? Would you help us to see that under the cover of church, and even maybe community group and Bible study and prayer that, that we can, at a functional level, be living for something other than you. And that as you reveal that to us, that, that we would break over it and experience repentance and, and renewal and understand that your grace that has been shown to us is undeserved and you are not obligated to give it. Father, that that would renew our hearts. That that would change the way we view our neighbors, our coworkers, those that we would say are making bad decisions, that we would understand apart from the grace of God that we would be doing the exact same thing, maybe even worse, that apart from grace, we are capable of the most heinous of sin. Father, I do pray that you would move us out on mission that we would care about our neighborhoods, that we would care about our city, that we would care about our world, that we would care about people who don't know you, who are imploding, who are sinking. And Father, as we receive this meal this morning, the Lord's Supper, would you remind us that this is a, a meal of grace, a gift from you, because you love us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.